This is Norman John on BIM and Project Control, where we discuss all things building information modeling, project control, and emerging technologies in the construction industry. Good day, listeners. This is John. This is Norm. And this is Norman John on BIM and Project Control. Yep. Good day, folks. Uh, we have a special guest here on our um, second podcast. Um, the topic will be all scheduling. So pretty much all scheduling um, from construction, uh, from design, and uh, anything goes on the scheduling with, with respect to the projects and programs. So we have here the um, world, world expert, uh, let, let us say this, uh, for uh, scheduling and um, for claims, uh, schedule management, schedule best practices. And he has been, um, are you a fellow also, right, Chris? Yes, sir. Yeah, he's a fellow of um, AACE uh, International. So without further ado, this is uh, Mr. Chris Carson from Arcadis. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Doing great. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate yep. that intro. Yeah, you got a lot of acronyms behind your name. Some of my uh, colleagues would say that you're certifiable. <laughs> I hear that a lot. <laughs> yeah, that joke comes from my colleague, uh, Phil Larson, which you probably know who that is. Yep, I think he's actually said person. it to me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> credit where credit's due with that joke. That's right. Yeah, and this, Chris, is this is going to be like a relaxed uh, mode of um, a podcast, uh, nothing much uh, too serious, just... Just let it flow the uh, the tone of the voice and everything like that. So just be relaxed and uh, not much of serious thing. But um, we we are honored uh, tonight that you're here today and then uh, sharing the knowledge and um, the skills that you have gained for for these years. And um, you've been involved in AAC for a longest time too, and also in the project controls community. So this is really really great and really do appreciate it. Um, being a guest of ours, so. No, yep, appreciate you inviting me. Yep. So, we, without further ado, how would you think about the uh, scheduling methodologies right now? Uh, what's happening? New technologies and stuff like that, especially in the four D BIM scheduling, where where people are like truly on it right now. Yeah, I think. <clears throat> You know, 4D's been around for quite a while, but it's still becoming embraced or getting embraced in the industry. Um, you know, I was doing 4D claims in the early 2000, you know, because when it started out, the only people that could afford for you to do a 4D model were the, you know, people that were in big trouble on big projects with claims. Mm-hmm. And so I did a handful of them in the Middle East where they're, you know, multi-billion dollar programs and they can afford to spend the money. <clears throat> the technology's, you know, streamlined and gotten easier to use and, you know, tightened up to being better and sort of not automatic yet, but but getting a lot closer. So I, I think it's 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 right now probably I think getting this it's probably not penetrated the market yet, but it's starting to. And I I've long been a proponent of, you know, how do we move it from claims because it's it's decent enough for claims. I mean, it it basically lets you compare the as plan and the as built, 
and then you know sort of analyze from that. But mm-hmm. it, it's more of a demonstration uh, product in the claims world. <clears throat> and frankly, the methodology that that it sort of um, demonstrates is not my favorite methodology. <clears throat> so you're doing it. Uh, sort what of, methodology is that? <clears throat> well, if you're familiar with the forensic schedule analysis recommended practice, you know, we, we believe that there were nine distinct methodologies. They really fall into four categories. Uh, two of those are observational and two of those are model. And, okay. and for long, the industry, the claims industry felt like you had to model delays in order to prove that they were, that they existed and to quantify. And that sort of came out of the UK in the colonial world. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, a lady by the name of Pat Galloway, uh, years ago, it's probably 20 years ago, 25 years ago now, <clears throat> came up with the observational, the first observational approach. And, you know, we were all doing different versions of different things and, and all that. But, <clears throat> but the, um, the modeled approaches are either additive, which is the time impact analysis type, mm-hmm. Similar to a prospective TIA, if you have a you know predicted delay, you know if you have an absorbed delay, with that methodology, you go back in time and you try to put yourself in the position of the scheduler, and and try to predict forward. And you can either pretend you don't know what really happened, even though you have all the records, or you can mm-hmm. know what really happened and use them. <clears throat> but the modeled approaches are labor intensive, uh, highly subjective and a little tougher to do. Uh, the other model approach is the collapsed as built, those couple of versions. And those are very expensive to do because it's a lot of modeling. <clears throat> you know, the observational are basically the as planned versus as built. And then the, the, the period analyses, what sometimes called window analyses. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> My favorite is the forensic schedule uh, the MI, their, their method implementation protocols is what we call them. And MIP 3.4 is the bifurcated CPA, the contemporaneous period analysis. <clears throat> I happen to think that's the strongest. Mm-hmm. It, it most closely matches the way schedules are really updated because it separates progress from logic, from all the logic changes. Mm-hmm. And that's the way a scheduler, I mean, think about it as a scheduler. When I work for a contractor, if our update was due on Friday, I'd meet with the team on Thursday. We'd walk the job. I'd get all the information. I'd sit down, you know, as early in the day as I could, input all the actual dates, estimate the remaining durations based on whatever I got from the field, and then recalculate, you know, up, update to the new data date and calculate. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that would be the statusing of the schedule. And then if it showed late, then what I would do would be to reach back out to the PMCM mm-hmm. and, you know, ha- after having analyzed it to figure out what were the drivers for delay, <clears throat> reach back out to them, say, look, you know, the Mason killed you this month. They're, you know, they've, they've created delay. They're, they're behind in these three areas, whatever that is. What do you want to do about it? I mean, mm-hmm. do you want to just report it late? You know, do you want to try to mitigate it <clears throat> and then resist the effort when you're when they suggest that you just just fix it, just make it go away, fix it, because that's not a good approach, right? <clears throat> so then, and that's definitely an ostrich in the sand type technique, right there. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> but it, based on forty five years of doing claims, that approach is used a lot. <clears throat> that it appears that in a lot of um, 
and a lot of claims, there does not appear to be any input from the project management team. So some scheduler is, you know, is re, sort of regaining time or mitigating the schedule, often in a closet somewhere, mm-hmm. not checking with the PM team. Nobody's yep. worrying about what it's, what it's doing to resources and all that. So <clears throat> that's really my favorite. The thing is that a retrospective TIA is takes exactly the same amount of research that a uh, a, a contemporaneous period analysis takes. And the, the difference, I mean, there, there's a basic big difference in the two, in the modeled versus observational. With the modeled approach, you have to research the documents and research meaning including interviewing the team and everything else. And you have to come up with a list of all of the major delays. Mm-hmm. So you you look into the, into the project and all the documents Yep. Identify everything that looked like a delay. And then from that, you have to choose, are you going to model all of those? Are you going to model what appear to be worst? You know, there's mm-hmm. a judgment that happens that that's pretty subjective. And so then you model those. And, you know, I worked on um, in the Middle East in Dubai, the uh, the emir there built the uh, their horse race center. And so okay. yeah. that had some, some huge delays on it. And we, they, they first asked us to provide uh, a modeled approach and we identified 85 de- delays, you know, on the project and had to go through and figure out how do we know, you know, how do we identify which are the worst and all. And, and that, that's and which the, would another critical, I imagine too. Yeah. And that's what happened. So, and that, by the way, that's the Maydan race course. If you ever get a chance to look it up, because it's a beautiful building, mm-hmm. the the problem with the building was it's a it's a one kilometer long uh, horse race center uh, for them to you know with a track and a place for the emir and every every the public or bills to go and watch horse racing. It's a kilometer long. It's eight to twelve stories high, all concrete, and floating over top of the whole building is a falcon wing. Nice. Yeah, that's what I liked about Dubai. They have very creative. I used to work there myself, so I've been around. Seen it. Yep. Yeah. So I mean, they they take architectural to a, a new level. Yeah. They for do. sure. Especially yep. the, the Falcon. Eastern, right? yeah. yeah. Well, the Falcons are national bird mm-hmm. in yeah. Dubai, and the problem they had, you know, they do a lot of EPC there, so it was you know EPC design build. Mm-hmm. The. Um, the contractor took on the, the the drawings, you know, took over the drawings and finished them. <clears throat> they were they never provided the conceptual drawings for the Falcon Way, how to do it, what to do with it. <clears throat> All they knew was where it was going to go and where they expected to support it. And so they had twelve bearing points that were columns, mm-hmm. you know, going down to to pilings. <clears throat> and at some point, the owner's structural engineer came back to him and said. Um, it's impossible to do it, which you want to do. Because they had this huge wing, they had a, a cantilever on each end that was like 45 feet long. Wow. And they wanted to hang a restaurant underneath the Falcon ring. Right. So you would, theoretically, you would be riding under the Falcon's wing yep. eating dinner. So that's the concept. And it's extra that weight on the edge of the cantilever. I mean, as far as you can get out. So yeah. that's a lot of torque. And oh, yeah. uh, I meant the physical, no. yeah, that, yeah, that would have been a physical <clears throat> yeah, and, nightmare. And, and winds are obviously a problem in Dubai, right? Yeah. They so, so yeah, they coming off the, uh, the sea there. So, yeah. 
So they hired a second structural engineer who came back with the same response. And then um, the contractor finally found somebody in Malaysia that came out and did the design. But meanwhile, the building's going up. There were 12 bearing points and they, they stopped working uh, at the, in that full area in the center at those 12 columns mm-hmm. because they knew they were going to have to reinforce the columns. Mm-hmm. So everything went up except the center place. They, uh, they re- requested a time extension a couple of times, got rejected. Ultimately, it went to a claim. Uh, they, yeah. got, they got terminated, and we supported the contractor for that. But um, it was pretty interesting because those columns are like three-foot diameter. It's a two-way slab on all 12 floors. So as you can imagine, the, the mess of rebar coming into the columns <clears throat> It was just outstanding. <laughs> okay. and, with, and they had to go in and drive new piles. So, so with, with to that point, Chris, you guys supported a contractor on the claims, right? Yes. And uh, and then you did a uh, 80, 85 delays um, modeling. What criteria and tool did you use that time? P6. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. We collected all the data in in Excel and in uh, in a database management and mm-hmm. in, uh, we were using DBase three and we moved over to access, but, <clears throat> but <clears throat> that's the problem with the retrospective TIA. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you have to model that. And so you spend a lot of time identifying the delays and then you spend a lot more time in modeling them <clears throat> and it's hard to model them all, but when you model them, you have to model them sequentially. So you have to identify the delays identify when they started, when they stopped, mm-hmm. and start modeling those to see what happens. If you're trying to establish concurrency, so if you're looking for compensability, mm-hmm. you have to eliminate eliminate any concurrent delays. <clears throat> then you have to run two analyses. You have to run one for owner delays and mm-hmm. a separate one for the contractor delays, and then compare the two and determine what's concurrent. <clears throat> on the flip side, on an observational analysis, such as the the CPA, you actually start with the premise that a well-maintained schedule will show you the effects of delay. Mm -hmm. So you go into the schedule and you look at what got delayed in actual dates. So, you know, you look, you know, you look at the the baseline plan in the first month, what activities that were on the baseline critical path did not happen were delayed. Mm -hmm. And you let the schedule show you the delays. Now, once you've established it, it actually shows you the delayed activities as opposed to the real delays, right? Yeah. Certain activities that got delayed. And then you, do like and then you day, look. Base variances calculation, right? Yeah. And then yeah. you look at the predecessors or the, the delay drivers. Um, it's not uncommon that the delay drivers are not an actual, are not actually another activity in the schedule that they might be some underlying issue mm-hmm. that, that drove the delay. And so you have to do the research for that. And, and it's kind of the same level of research, mm-hmm. but, but there are a lot less subjective decisions. You know, if the schedule, you know, you're using the contractor schedules. Mm-hmm. So nobody, nobody can say you made up your own or there's you know, any issues there. Okay. You let the schedule tell you the delay. So, so that's kind of my. Feeling. So when it comes when it comes to uh, using the contractor schedule, 
are you first looking at if it's a good schedule as far as the, the logic to it? And how, how do you go about doing that? Well, um, we try to follow the forensic schedule analysis RP because it's, okay. it's an excellent document, really the only good document out there that sort of takes you step by step through. Cool. So you can only, each of the methodologies can be only be used in certain conditions. You know, you need to have certain documentation, certain schedules in order to do various types of methodologies. So, and if you're doing- Okay, we'll, we'll make sure we uh, put a link in for our listeners what RP that is so they can just jump right to it. Um, as far as documentation, I, I'm i not a scheduler. I, I have more of a quantum background. And I, I did work in claims when I worked in Southeast Asia and uh, the Middle East. And I found a lot of times it's not just- you know, the schedule, but it's like the actual field documents um, really makes a case. So I'm, on that job that you're talking about with the Falcon and the, the race uh, way, I mean, how was the documentation on that job? That really make a difference? Yeah, we had way too many documents. <clears throat> the, <clears throat> the biggest problem we had was everything was recorded in logs. <clears throat> and so we had, you know, logs that recorded all the daily reports, recorded all the RFIs, all the change requests. And then we had the document, backup documentation for that. <clears throat> but our problem was nobody did it. Nobody had any consistency in the way they, they labeled documents and entered them into the log. Mm-hmm. And so if you were looking for, and, and I, and I had a, I had a team with me, one of whom was a, a really good Excel database guy, <clears throat> because if you wanted to isolate all the activities that were related in the schedule or all the RFIs or all the field reports Mm -hmm. that were related to say the second floor, they were recorded under F2, floor two, FLR2, second floor, second level, level two, just there must've been 25 or 30 different names that were used throughout all the documents. And so we had to run these big data searches to capture all the different versions of that and do that over and over again, a lot of times in order to capture them all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I'm hearing here is if you're a, a contractor, have um, some standardized way you document all your field notes and whatever, yep. it'll make life easier in case shit happens. Yeah. Yep. And part of the, part of what you have to do is, is validate the sources. So the RP, and this is 29R03, forensic schedule analysis, the RP has what we call source validation protocols. There is, there's a set of them for a baseline schedule validation, a set for an update schedule, and a set for an as-built schedule. Okay. And so it tells you what to do, what you need to look at, how many activities, what, you know, what you need to examine, where you need to validate, you know, what percentage of the critical path and near critical path you need to validate. Mm-hmm. A lot of good information in there. And so we follow that. The benefit to your listeners, the huge benefit to embracing that RP and AAC in general, but that RP and using it and working at your protocols is that if I'm, if you're an expert on one side, let's say Norman's an expert on one side mm-hmm. of a claim and I'm an expert on the other, he's got a great background, a lot of experience. He produces a, a forensic analysis based on his background, right? His years okay. of experience, his knowledge, certifications, everything. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's an expert report. 
I'll produce the same report on my side, but I follow a protocol as established by ACE. So my report is not just my expertise, but it's the expertise of the 60 experts who helped put the RP together. Yeah, that technical board right. with the, mm-hmm. and then the, anybody who contributed as far as uh, group yep. review, because they, they go through a whole standardization with their RPs. It's um, as I'm it's actually currently process. the uh, chair of the BIM subcommittee. So I'm uh, basically okay. a non-voting member. So I, I see the steps that they go through. And for uh, listeners in project control, we, we do advise to yep. join an association like AAC because those standards are not uh, just for schedulers. There's cost engineering, there's earned value. Uh, man, there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of benefit there. And like you said, you basically have some muscle behind you or, or something to hang your hat on uh, versus mm-hmm. just one person's because many minds makes a better product. Yeah. yeah. Chris, Plus you have a standardized mm-hmm. process. Yeah. yeah. Chris is exactly still, uh, part of the subcommittee of ske- planning and scheduling, right, Chris? Yes. Yep. Yes. It's a great subcommittee. <clears throat> have, have either one of y'all ever authored or contributed to an RP? to a recommended practice yeah we're, we're not yet thinking. um yeah on my end we were like planning to create like an rp with a bim subcommittee uh which pertains to the 4d bim scheduling yep but the thing is uh two of the guys that was uh wanted to help out uh didn't materialize maybe um they were kind of busy and caught up but definitely would want to revisit that so that we could be able to show the rp that we wanted to do is for the 4d bim uh scheduling so that we could be able to help out the project controls community uh when to use that specific technique yeah let me know yes. i'll be happy to be happy to work yeah, with so, you on that so be uh okay. basically being the chair uh, i just stepped onto that position the first focus is to uh, focus on the PPG. Uh, so that's kind of like that yep. first step. Um, we're, uh, we're about halfway there. You know, all the papers have been selected. I'll be writing the intro to that and going through that process. But pretty shortly here, as chair, I, I really do want to see RPs coming from like, you know, beginning stuff as far as getting terminology all agreed on. Like, what are the divisions of BIM? Because uh, you get past 5D uh, with cost estimating. You know, 4D, mm-hmm. everybody knows it's time. 5D, everybody knows it's cost. 60 facilities. But then, it, you know, it goes to like 9, 10. I mean, I don't know what those are. Getting those defined, getting the terminology defined. So in future RPs, mm-hmm. we are using this, uh, the, everybody agrees to those terminology. And like, I, I'm one of the reasons I stepped up to this position because my dream is really to see user-friendly integrated project delivery where you're basically looking at the object of a bid model and everything goes into that object, cost, time, um, and then later later earn value. So, you know, in the next uh, quarter or so, I, I do plan to put out a vision statement to to the um, community at large or AAC. And, you mm-hmm. know, this is the vision, you know, add, add to it. Um, but I, I one of the things I'd like to see is uh, liaisons uh, from different subcommittees uh, join the, the um the BIM. So like someone from uh, the scheduling subcommittee work with uh, the BIM subcommittee because personally, so I have the estimating background, but I don't have the background for all the other areas of project control. Mm-hmm. So I need to know from those professionals, those earned value professionals, those scheduling professionals, 
what do you need out of the model? You tell me, you're, you're the, you're the expert. And then basically get that kind of team going. Cause I mean, I don't want to have a team of non-schedulers writing what goes into the BIM scheduling part <laughs> of, of the BIM. So, um, yeah. I, I have a big vision there, and I, I think in over the next year or two, where uh, I, you know, I see some good things happening, I, I would like to read, reach out to other uh, associations like Building Smart. I was just on a yeah. con- uh, a conference for 4D, and mm-hmm. basically there there's there was a um, there was a a vendor with a software that has integrated cost, and basically they're they're saying, you know, we we, we do this already, and mm-hmm. um, uh, we, and, and we're doing this with building smart. And so I think it would behoove like our association to, you know, latch onto some of these associations that are using ISO type standards, you know, mm-hmm. why reinvent the wheel? Uh, you know, some partnership would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. There's some things there. It's pretty interesting. And like I said, Norm, I'm pretty, I'm interested in that. I have a paper yep. that we're doing for the 21, uh, conference. We, um, you know, we, we're on the project controls team at Newark Airport in, in New Jersey on, on the Terminal A redevelopment program, which is, a I think, 2 to $3 billion program. And we're going fully intelligent BIM. And so mm. I spent a couple months setting, setting things up. We have a BIM guy that helped with that. And we have moved over from providing monthly reports to providing uh-huh. a monthly BIM update. And it's multi-prime, so there, I think mm-hmm. there there are eight or nine contracts that we upload all of those into the into the master program schedule, mm-hmm. and it's fully 4D and cost loaded. And so our team sits down with the individual project managers, and and they you know they pull up the the BIM model, and uh, we've been using Navi- Navis Works. They're, okay, they're switching works. over now, but but they they pull up the Navisworks model and they advance it through the month. Uh, on the side of the screen, it calculates the value from the from mm-hmm. the cost loading, and they and they can you know they can run it, they can stop. So for a three week look ahead, they can pull that up, they can look at it, they can stop, rotate it, you know, uh, expose various elements and close off various elements. It, it's a huge, it's, it's what I've been trying to get to for 15 years because oh, okay. trying Makes to sense, use it on right? a daily basis, you know? And, yep. Yep. Yeah. Because, yep. because we have, you have good planning and you don't have claims. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then, uh, Oh, I mean, less. <laughs> yeah. The one that made me um, really interested on the 4D BIM scheduling, uh, Chris and John is that, in 2009, I was kind of. This is the first time that I was exposed to Synchro, and I bet you know that uh, Chris, uh, the tool yep. for 4D BIM scheduling, which is bought by Bentley um, two yeah, years and ago. We're, I believe. we're using it. And we are uh, using it. Yep, yeah. and pretty much it was like 2009, and now we're like in 2020. So it's been like 11 years in the making, and I I bet. 3D or 4D been scheduling, like you mentioned, Chris, was uh, happening um, prior to that. And it yep. is very beneficial for the um, client to know where we're at in the schedule rather than going and flipping 500 pages of the schedule and not seeing the, uh, you yep. know, the, uh, the ability to, to see the real value and where we're at in the schedule. You can easily say that, hey, 
here we are in the schedule with this specific construction or foundation or building level that we're like done. And then when, when we go back to the previous month, this is where we at. And this is the, the specific cost that we, we incurred based on the uh, construction um, resources that we have, we have used. So it's pretty much amazing that yep. uh, it turned out to be useful um nowadays well we we use it on on multi-prime it's particularly useful because all the claims on multi-prime come out of the inter-project relationships so you have you know you have a contractor that is supposed to get some piece of work done and the other contractor is relying on that and so we tag all that in the bim model and mm-hmm. so when they when they run the BIM model, they can actually show all of those inter project relationships. But but you were talking about five D for a second. I know I know that's that you know that John, that's kind of your area. But mm-hmm. I've yeah. been, I've been doing five D BIM. Uh, I bought my first three D software package in nineteen ninety three. Man, what is that? Okay, and it had. 1993 and that was solid builder and it it allowed you to build a database of costs and then you model in 3d then you could you know you could run the 3d model wherever you wanted with it it was not a 4d but it was 3d so you Mm, could you could turn on you could turn off and turn on things and so you could pull out all your costs based on however you wanted to whatever was exposed but after you know after working from that time till now so often when people talk about 5D mm-hmm. there's still a bit of a chase to try to load the costs into the bim model correct and, yep that's why i've, I've been seeing got, and i've sort of gotten to the point where i don't think that makes a lot of sense anymore at least mm-hmm. not care, not not storing the database in the bim model because what happens is that drives you into having to manage two cost. actual yeah. databases. Yeah, cost instead. Right, because yeah, your, cost- your cost estimate one and then the BIM model separated. So basically, maintaining two different spreadsheets is hard enough. Talk about well, databases. Yeah, it even gets exponentially difficult. And then you're also managing your database for your cost estimating software. Correct. And then you and and I I went I sat down with. Uh, with Primavera um, last year, Arcadis is Oracle's second largest global client. Mm-hmm. So we've embraced it across all of our offices around the world. Yep. And I sat down with them to get them to show me whatever they have in their products, you know, in their, in their really their PMIS and whatever, because they've been touting, you know, 5D and everything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and what they have is costs loaded into the software, but not loaded into Primavera. And so while they can give you all the costs, just like I could in 1993, mm-hmm. I can say, show me the foundation costs or the roof costs or whatever. They can't give you time distributed costs unless you put it into the schedule. Unless it's resource so, loaded, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Resource Using loaded. And, mm-hmm. and there's always seems to be that disparity as far as the estimates estimators work breakdown structure and then the schedulers the way they do their work breakdown structure for those activities so like i don't you really have to have those two professionals on the same page even if you're using a 3d model yeah but if you do a good wbs in the estimate stage 
you can always use it for the schedule, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've never found a situation. It's when they don't bother to link the two, you know, to use the two. Mm-hmm. If you have a common, and and if you're if you're on a system and you know you you develop your estimates down to a work package level, you develop your schedules down to a work package level, then the the WBS works fine. And you don't, yeah. you know, you may have to do a, a cost breakdown if you've got a, a control accounts that are a little different that you've got to sort of cross reference. But yeah, but Arcadis has a couple of softwares for estimating. One of those is CostX, and I'm an old Sage Timberline guy. We have that as well. But mm-hmm. CostX actually allows you to link the BIM model directly into the software, and it's a two way link up. So once you've actually inserted it, installed it, whatever, whatever changes you make in the BIM model from then on out kind of automatically get updated in the schedule, in the estimate. So basically and, you map it once and you're basically done until a new object uh, appears in a revision of the yes. model and you have to relink that. And for those who don't know, uh, cost X is uh, by RIB. Um, so they're, they're one of the few softwares out there that you can actually see the 3D model with the IFC. I think another one out there is NAMI Tech. Um, for those listeners listening, if there's anything other than those that actually can mm-hmm. see the 3D model in the SMA software, we would like to know about it. So join our uh, LinkedIn page, group page, and let us know. Yep, definitely. Yep. That would really truly help because um, integrating the cost estimate to, uh, to the BIM model uh, will be a truly great approach. So that it will it will be like a viable approach on the four D BIM scheduling, like what uh, Chris Carson said. Yeah, the BIM the BIM world's been an interesting path. <clears throat> I consulted with the federal government for a long time, and <clears throat> they tried to they they were going full BIM on a couple of big programs, <clears throat> and nobody really sat down and wrote out the right specs and and got everybody's contract aligned. Yeah, and and what we found was going on was. The architect was doing an intelligent BIM, you know, fully loaded with the goal that they would kind of just like we're doing at Newark, the goal that they would load in all the product. Mm -hmm. And as you got shop drawings and purchases that would be replaced and and the final completed as built BIM model would be turned over to operations and they would have all the all the data, every data for every piece of equipment, all the for door locks for everything, and they'd have you know user manuals loaded. So when maintenance needed to do something in a facility, that all they have had was the bin model. That's all they needed. So they started with that, paid the architects to do all that, but then they never got into the contractor schedule to mm-hmm. uh, contract into the GC's contracts to maintain it at the same level. So when, when the BIM model went to the contractors, the first thing they did was wipe all of the information out of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they did all that work yeah. for nothing. Awesome. So it would yeah. process quicker. <clears throat> yep. And the second thing that happened, <clears throat> and, and this is something that would be good, you know, when we start looking at the BIM at, at an RP to, to make sure we uh, deal with, because mm-hmm. <clears throat> I've been in several programs where they were, you know, they were having to pull all the BIM models together from the trades. Mm-hmm. And of course, the problem is BIM developed in the trades out of a, a need to be more efficient. Mm-hmm. So it, it came Correct. up through things like Duckmaster, you know, where it's a software that they use to lay out and, and, and 
cut out ductwork, you know, and that type of thing. And then somebody had to get together and, and put together the, the common language and so forth. But, but one of the things that I found going on was they were, this particular agency was struggling with delays. And when I reviewed their schedule, they had a six week period for actually taking all the BIM models from all the contractors in, in the baseline and integrating that into one. And so I met with the head, the head integrator and the major trades only to find out that they could really only integrate about four or five different BIM models at one time. And so that six week period was fine if they only had to do those five or six, you know, say it's five models, Mm -hmm. but they had, they had six of those groups that they had to integrate. So that, you know, that six week period that had to be done sequentially six times meant that part of the reason they were in delay mode was nobody had had benchmarked, had a, had a baseline that had an adequate amount of time mm-hmm. to handle the entire BIM integration. Yep. Oh, and okay. so, yeah, so I think it's important to get some thought from the industry about the best way to be able to schedule the integration part of it, right? Yep. And, then, and even the monthly, you know, whatever it takes, because it isn't as simple. I mean, you know, it's not simple, but mm-hmm. it isn't as, it isn't as quick. Um, and it changes every day. So, you know, it's, I'm sure it's quicker now than it was. That was six years ago, I think seven years ago. Was but, it a matter of just processing pow- uh, power um, as far as that integration or was it just, was it a kind of processy human processy issue? Yeah, it, it was not like, just yeah. processing power. Yeah. It, it was more about, you know, what they can manage at one time mm-hmm. in, in the integration. So, okay. cause I suggested, you know, use multiple computers and then, you know, put them on different systems and then link them together at the end and all. And it didn't seem like there was any good solution. Mm-hmm. So, so just make sure in the RP that there's a section that deals with scheduling. Mm-hmm. Well, Cause you know, the engineering world has problems, the whole, the world of design engineering mm-hmm. and how to schedule that. Cause engineering is often a cause of, of delay, delay, right? A lot of EPC projects and all that. We wrote a paper last year on successful design scheduling that um, I pulled together th- my, my son for one mm-hmm. as his first paper, but then two of the guys that I've worked with where we've done a lot of scheduling for engineering mm-hmm. and try And my plan is to write an RP of, for that as well, Yeah, because that's one of the areas that causes a problem and the BIM just adds to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Th- this one brings to, uh, to a point that I did ask this to one of the four, the uh, BIM scheduling expert that, Hey, can we set up like a BIM uh, scheduling from conceptual engineering, from engineering down to commissioning? That way, we would see the uh, interrelation of uh, how to see the cost from the design and go into the commission. Because merely the fact that from final design before construction, we always get like a tons of RFI, right? Right. And to see, to close the gap of that specific cost prior to construction, we tend to create a specific, you know, the period of uh, DSDC. They call it design services during construction, right, Chris? And that merely um, for the fact that there's like a lot of, uh, you know, cost between it. And how come we cannot apply BIM from the design, like what you said, uh, creating like a paper for um, engineering schedule 
it is important for for my sake because I'm, I'm I'm a scheduler. It is important for me to know the cost and the schedule from the conceptual design going back to the um, going through construction, right, Chris? Can yeah, you comment, comment on that one? Yeah, there's actually a more structural basis to the problem. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, the, the only way to get, well, let me back up. The goal with design, right? The goal is to establish a budget based on what you think the design is going to be and then do your best to design to that budget. Yeah. The only way to do that effectively is to start out with, uh, you know, a really good conceptual and, you know, class five estimate and schedule a pre-design to, to put a whole process in place that starts with value planning before the designer starts. So you, you start out with the, the right ideas, what you can do and evolves through a phase gate effort where you move from a class five estimate at, 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 you know, 10% documents. And as the document maturity, the scope definition improves, you stop at each stage and, and you actually do a full review. So you, you take the class five at early conceptual. When you move up to 10 or 15%, you move up into a class four, maybe a class three, and you provide an estimate at that level. But you also provide you know, value engineering and you start constructability review as you get drawings. And with that, we should be able to do BIM modeling and you do conceptual schedules. And then as the documents advance, maybe to 35%, then you pull, you know, then you stop them again and you do another review for say a class three estimate and schedule, you know, a, you know, a BIM, maybe a LOD three BIM, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you pull that together and then you finalize value engineering and then you do a good constructability review. Yep. And then as you move to more maturity, you do the same thing. And even without BIM in the picture, if that's done well, and and it included the early stages included, you know, risk-based contingency determinations, right? Mm -hmm. So that you went into it understanding the range of accuracy of an estimate at any given stage of scope definition, and you apply a reasonable contingency based on the things that are likely to happen. Yep. As you walk through that, you know, you're narrowing the range of accuracy down. To hitting your target. But if you do that well, when you get to the end, you really have designed a budget. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean it's on the original budget, but it means that when you were at a class four estimate and you realize that the designer is putting in footings for what we thought was a chain link fence, mm -hmm. then you question that, you know, yeah. as I had happened on a project. Yep. And you just say, what's this all about? And then when the A&E says to you, oh, we're, we're, we're you know, we're starting on the brick fence, then you can say, well, your original budget called for chain link. And so if you really want brick, let's estimate that. You get a budget together, you go back to them and say, there's a $3 million cost for you to go to a brick fence instead of chain link. Do you want to do that? And the owner has a chance mm -hmm. then to say yes or no. If they say yes, you add it to the budget. And that's done That's done well. That gets you to the point of actually having the right issue, the right information. The, the failure to do that, and particularly the failure to understand the range of accuracy of costs, and also particularly the failure to do constructability reviews, means that you get into the project with problems. I worked for contractors the first 22 years of my life. 
somewhere in the middle of that, I got into a project that was a nightmare. The worst set of drawings I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. It was a state project. The the project had been started and stopped three times. So they had three different hands on it in the design. I think we had 350 questions during the bid time, some of which were never answered. We had a thousand... We had a thousand RFIs on the project. How big was the job monetarily wise? It was a $22 million job. It wasn't that big. That's a lot. But it just had so many holes and it was a part partial renovation. So there was a bunch of that type of thing. But when I, when I crawled out of, when I crawled out of that job, you know, got my ass kicked. Exactly. I, th- I sat down one weekend. I was just like, you know, I never want to go through that again. How do I avoid that? So the very next project that we that we won, I told my boss, I said, I am going to commit some time for the PM and the superintendent to sit down and do a constructability review. And it's for two reasons. One, it's to catch all that crap early on. Mm-hmm. But also, two, because every time I call for a scheduled development session, I asked for the PM and the superintendent major trades if they unless they understand what it is. And I schedule, you know, I schedule two days. They tell me they can only give me one day. They come into this the room the first day in the morning and they spend the first first four hours looking at the drawings for the first time in their entire life. Man. Even though they were even though they were supposed to come ready to start yeah, that's scheduling. Quite unprofessional if you ask me. Yeah. yeah, but it's common. I mean, they're busy yeah. on other projects and all that. Understandable. So yeah. So my boss didn't like it. And I said, we're going to do it. We did it. And it was such a success because what we what we did was we found in the first week after being awarded, we sent off like 25 RFIs, all the things that you usually discover during shop drawings. You know, when the structural engineer is completing the design on the back of the shop drawings because they didn't have something. I mean, we we found a column that was missing on a project, a column that was missing. Really? That, that somebody could cause did not problems. Work. It could. <laughs> well, imagine how that happens in the shop drawing. You know, it, it comes in, it gets marked, you know, approved as noted. They bleed all over it. You hope they're going to make the right corrections. Then somebody forgets that it's probably an extra. So nobody chases that as a change order until later on. And then six months later, you're fighting over a change order. This way, we sent in an RFI, said, hey, it looks to us like you might be missing a column. Yeah. And you get an immediate answer. Then you send that out and get a price on it and get it going. Yeah, it, I could say with that approach, such- you, would, uh, you would avoid that missing the that contract window of notification. And it made us look very professional. Also, when the drawings are really bad, it's sort of like you fired a warning shot across the bow of the A&E, letting them know that you're on top of it. Yeah. The other, the other smaller piece of it, which was interesting, comes out of my claims background. One of the things you have to do when you have a, a dispute, a delay, is you have to establish what's reasonable. So an example is I had a project one time where there was a delay, they, they, they formed and poured a concrete little uh, knee wall, little cheek wall about a foot tall. And then they framed structural studs on top of that. 
concrete got stripped. You know, they stripped the forms all ready to go. It was cured. Everything's set. They delivered the material out there. They bring out the middle stud crew. Mm-hmm. They walk up to the wall and they realize that there are no embedded fasteners in the, in the concrete. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they go bit. look in the drawings, right? Look in the drawings, discover there's nothing. <clears throat> oh, so they, was the guy was reading the, uh, the crew was reading the plans, nothing there. So they just didn't install anything there. Well, they got to that point and they got stopped. <clears throat> they put it in RFI. It took a week to get an answer. <clears throat> the contractor applied for like a one week delay. <clears throat> and now I come in as an expert. <clears throat> and the first thing I have to say is, look, <clears throat> if you had shown up on the job with no track, no studs, no nothing, no mm-hmm. screws, you would not have been able to start the job, right? Yeah. And they say, yes. And I said, well, you also showed up with no way to actually secure your your wall to the foundation. What's the difference? In order to get your count of studs and track and everything else, you had to look at the drawings, right? You had to look at the drawings. You had to plan your work and you had to do that some amount of time ahead of time in order to be ready to deliver that material. And and so you bear some responsibility for having missed that in your planning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you hire that contractor because they are experts at building and therefore you expect them to- even if they weren't- Yep. they have to have something when they plan it. So, so when I'm establishing, it's clearly a delay. It's okay. a, you know, it's a compensable delay to the contractor, but is it five days? I'd say, no, there's some obligation on the part of the contractor to have looked at the job a couple of days ahead of time. Right, yeah, and right, so maybe, yeah. yeah. And maybe it's based on the availability of metal studs. So I would look at that and say, well, if they can get a metal stud order put in and get it delivered within two days, then maybe their planning is reasonably set at two days. So out of a five-day delay, two days is contractor fault. Mm-hmm. Okay. Three days is owner. So it eliminates all that because you have all those problems solved. And, you know, we, we, we push, we encourage all of our owners to do constructability reviews because it makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. There's, there's something like a 20 to 1 return on investment on the time you spend on constructability reviews on the savings. And particularly if you do them early, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I handle constructability review on a hundred million dollar uh, roadway project, bridge project, really land bridges. So a lot of interchanges and all. Okay. And what we found during the constructability review was, and this was at 85% documents, which is really late to yeah, start really the first late. review. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We found it was a balanced site. If we could have scheduled the site the way we looked at the balancing, the material was acceptable. We could have actually done all the cut and fill. You know, all the cut could have been done and it could have been used to fill, you know, the the fill areas. And we could have had a balanced site. There was a $6 million savings if we could have gone to a balanced site. But the drawings were done, all the MOT, the sequencing was established and they literally had to bring in new material and fill areas well before they were doing any excavation mm-hmm. where they could have used the material. We could have changed that, but it was too late at 85% drawing. So it's got to be constructability review done early, but there's 6% savings on the project. I mean, that's that's somebody's profit, right? Yeah. You know? yeah. Would you yeah. think where does the scheduler go to that? 85% uh, design, should the scheduler be involved in the constructability review? Because I, I have, based on your... Absolutely. Yeah. 
Because I think it, it should. Yep. Well, and we call it scheduled constructability. Mm-hmm. And we have a recommended practice for it. <clears throat> so absolutely should be. You know, value engineering is kind of an estimating um, discipline, the way I see it, the way I learned it. You know, it's it's what you do as part of an estimator. And of course, it's a specialty. Value planning is the early stages of that, where you use your knowledge about the products and the estimating and the construction and constructability to help the A&E or help before the A&E mm-hmm. decide what are we going to do? Are we doing roller compacted concrete? If so, why are we using pavement or using concrete? You know, what are we doing? And we look at that from a, you know, from a value engineering standpoint. And we, and it's called, we call it value planning in the early stages. If we do a good job with all of that, everything flows through and we work hand in hand with the A&E, you know, we hit every stage and we stop and they, they put their pens down and they move forward and let us, you know, we don't let them move forward until we get you know, a, a review and make sure everything's still on track. If everything's on tack, track, they're free to go again. If it's not, then we stop there and we, you know, we identify what's wrong and get with the owner and say, look, you know, some of the design you're doing is heading you down the wrong track, wrong direction, whatever that is. And that's how you get there. <clears throat> BIM will suffer exactly the same problems if that process is not fixed, mm-hmm. Right. That's true. So BIM's not gonna it's not gonna be a solution to a bad process. But if we have a good stage gate process that we you know we've managed to set up and, and actually implement, then BIM would be huge in helping mm-hmm. you, particularly with you know, with all the structural, all the constructability, you know, the conflict resolution, all of those things. And being able to run 4D models would help everybody along the way. Yeah. That's and why now we, just, we were mentioning earlier, like level of effort and uh, not level of effort, but uh, just conceptual. Yeah. Um, yeah. LOD, right. For uh, the, oh, the level of design yeah. and then, yep. and conceptual scheduling and estimating. I, I've come across the, like AI used for planning. Have, does Arcadis use anything like that? For their, you know, basically you put in your, your project history, it looks at what you've done before and it starts doing a lot of the grunt work for you. Have you used anything like that? We're, we we don't use anything like that right now. You know, Mr. Patterson's hard, hard at work on that and he's a brilliant guy. I, I'm pretty heavily invested in benchmarking. Mm-hmm. And and this is something we've talked a lot about. In fact, I've been talking to John Holloman because you know he's wrapping up a an RP on benchmarking. <clears throat> but I've been looking at you know we do a pretty good job with cost benchmarking because you you condition everything down to a unit price, right? Correct. Unit cost, yeah. and, mm-hmm. and you can you know and <clears throat> one of the things we do and we do this for clients is we go in and we look at their data. We capture, you know, whatever their industry is and their sectors and their subsectors. And so if they are, you know, an organization that builds schools, then we would set up a couple model schools or whatever. We capture their actual data, take all their database information, try to capture as many as you possibly can to get as large of a population as you can. We, we take that information and we look at it. Really, the the value there is in conceptual estimating. And so we usually try to set up a class five system and a class four system. So if they're schools, you determine what's the school. So is it a high school or a middle school or you know mm-hmm. primary school? 
and then you isolate that data at that level and you come up with at the class five, just a dollars per square foot. And, yeah. and you take hopefully thousands of, of data points of projects, mm-hmm. you do a linear regression analysis and that basically maps it against a straight line function to get a slope of a curve. And you can, you know, when you do the linear analysis, the regression analysis, you can look at the impact of, of square footages. <clears throat> and that gives you um, a series of, you know, if you, if you plot cost against square footage, it'll give you a series of straight lines that say from the data between, you know, 2,000 square feet and 10,000 square feet, the cost is pretty consistently at $280 a square foot. When we yep. go from 10,000 to 20,000, mm-hmm. you know, it's at 260. And so you wind mm-hmm. up with this, you know, this yeah, kind of the economy of scale type thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I hear you. And, you and, I, and then, yeah, I like the uh, point that you mentioned about putting different types of construction because, you know, those have different design criteria, therefore different material, different groups, different productivity. So it's really mm-hmm. important you know, junior high is not the same thing as a high school, not the same thing as a hospital skyscraper. I mean, they all have their, their, um, their economics and their, uh, the way they tool those type of projects. So that is important for our listeners to keep in mind is not every single commercial construction residential are the same. You have all these different types of construction that really need to be treated differently. And the more point, uh, cost points you had, you can, you touch on it, the more, uh, you have a better cost model for the future. Yep. Your confidence level goes up. The cost yep. side is pretty simple. It's really pretty simple. Very hard to do that on the scheduling side, right? Mm-hmm. Because yeah, I'd imagine so. <laughs> and so, and I've been talking to John Holloman because John's brilliant. I mean, he was with IPA. Um, he's one of my favorite people. Yeah, I've been and to several of the presentations. About, yeah. 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 He's hard to beat. He and I seem to travel. We've been in Peru together. We've been Columbia together, you know, at conferences, but he was really, and he's, he's not a scheduler. Mm -hmm. So he's really wanting to figure out a way to benchmark scheduling. And he thought you could maybe benchmark activities. And, and I told him after a long time of trying to figure out how you do this, I think we've settled on benchmarking productivity and that's kind of as deep as you can go. The benefit mm-hmm. there is the productivity directly aligns with your cost benchmarking, yep. right? So yeah. when when you maintain your cost benchmark, you also are maintaining your productivity benchmark system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, correct. Because that's how we that. reconcile projects with the uh, um, estimating is you want to kind of get out all the other things agreed upon. So you got the same labor rates, same equipment rates, same co- mm-hmm. um, commodity. And it really comes down to two things when it comes to reconciliation. It's the crew size and productivity. So that's yep. your benchmark, right? Yep. yep. And, you know, years ago when I was on the contractor side, I was using Timberline for estimating. You know, mm-hmm. it was it was the, the Cadillac or the, the Mercedes, mm-hmm. right? Because they, they had their rolling assembly where you can build those on the sly. You could set it up to ask yourself questions. Instead of having, prior to that, I had to set up a different work package for every single, you know, change. And if and if I went from a 24-inch wide footing to a 25-inch wide footing, I had to make an entirely new work package. And, you yeah, know, I love assemblies. They make life just so easy. They do. And, <laughs> and so, nowadays, uh, you do it in your quantity takeoff tool, and it feeds right into your, uh, uh, your, 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 estimating software. Yep. And so I was using P3 
but I was training people and we couldn't afford to buy licenses for everybody P3. Yep. And uh, Primavera came out with SureTrack, if you remember. Yep. So I I beta tested SureTrack. I actually got a little award for having asked the most, provided the most, most uh, critiques to them when the, in the, in the beta (laughs) test. And then they gave me a free version of it when they produced it. And I started training all my superintendents and PMs in that. Part of what came out with SureTrack was they had a tool that would allow you if if your if your estimating system was set up on a on a crew basis, which I moved to, you know, which is really assemblies crew basis, Correct. you could yeah. you could take a completed estimate in Timberline mm-hmm. and dump it dump it directly into SureTrack, and it would it would give you your list of activities that came out of the estimate. They would all be resource loaded and cost loaded. Mm-hmm. For about two years, I mean, I saw that as brilliant. For about two years, I tried to make that work. And it turned out to be harder to do it that way and then have to build the logic from scratch every time. Um, And eventually, I kind of abandoned it. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of, I got the company moved back into P3 anyway. But yeah, some of the softwares nowadays with estimating, they they Mm -hmm. have those um, schedule integrators and they allow you put that logic in there. I know WinS does that because that's the one I'm familiar with. Yeah, uh, but you, you really have to have your processes between you and the schedule down right. because um, I've never really seen it used. Uh, right. It's there, it's there, but the scheduler does their thing, the estimator does their things, and then they talk later and integrate. Yeah. So what's, I just never seen it successfully done. Yeah, what's going to be your suggestion, Chris, uh, for our listeners uh, with regards to the good practice for integrating cost estimate down to the schedule as per resources concern is from a cost resource side estimating needs to be done in the estimating tool it needs to be uploaded into the software mm-hmm. and someday they'll have an estimating tool that will automatically let you do that just like a BIM model does yep. mm-hmm. It may be that my hopes are, and I've asked my BIM guy to work on this because we have, you know, we have a national BIM leader and he's got a team. Mm-hmm. I, I would hope that the BIM model would be able to, which it does, dump into the estimate. But I would hope that it would be able to backload. And, and CostLex actually lets you do that. Once we've integrated the BIM model into CostX, mm-hmm. we've done the full estimate, you can upload the cost back into the BIM model. And I've asked them to see if there isn't a way, because I, I couldn't make it work with our team. Maybe mm-hmm. we have the wrong people. A way to then, once you've got the, you know, not maintain the database in the BIM model, but upload it from the estimate. And then once it's uploaded, use that in your 4D model so that it automatically loads the schedule. So to me, that's the chase I'm on to figure that out. That's for costs. Mm-hmm. And that way, you, that's the best scenario because then you have a time-related cost. Time-related cost, right. Yep. Yeah. I know one thing I want to talk to that gentleman you're you're mentioning. That would be great to get him on this this show. Oh, yeah. I'll pick his brain. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I'll, I'll get him introduced to you. Okay. I appreciate that. On the resource side, so this is interesting, and this may not be – well, this is what I've developed over the years, and um, I found this to work very well. Other things can work, obviously. We lo- we load resources in three 
types really, right? We load individual resources. Yep. So that's named. So that's an engineering design group where Mary okay. Smith is the only person that can do this and we have to we have to you know manage her time. Mm-hmm. We load role resources, which is carpenters and plumbers and you know maybe mechanical engineering designers, whatever those are. Yeah by trade into name, the category. Right? Yeah. Yep. And then we load crews. Okay. <clears throat> when I was in the contracting side I spent way too much time trying to collect role resource information from the sub trades. I spent, I spent too much time going into means and pulling down the crew composition tables and using that to try to build a spreadsheet that I can then dump in into P6 or, you know, P3 at the time. Mm -hmm. I spent too much of my life in the chase only to discover that one, the general contractor is counting on getting all their information from the subcontractors. Mm-hmm. The subcontractors are a variety of problems. Either they're not sophisticated enough or they don't want to share or they haven't thought it out or they're not going to make a decision about their resources until they're ready to put somebody on the job. Or they're and just so, not willing to put that level of effort to try to track that either. Yeah. Right. And, and it's a lot of effort and yeah. it, and then, it, and then if you're doing role resources, it requires a pretty detailed schedule because every time you work out a sequence, you double up your, your resources. And I've been on a handful of different claims where one in particular where my client was a GC, uh, but doing a concrete uh, structure. And he was at risk of being terminated by the CM because he didn't have enough manpower on the job. So I spent three days on the job. I took their schedule, which was not as detailed as it should be. Pretty mm-hmm. complicated, you know, ten-story parking garage and 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 library building, <clears throat> side by side. <clears throat> and it wasn't; it was detailed, but not detailed enough. And so they had a bunch of owner-caused delays where they kept having drawing problems, and they'd they'd form this elevator shaft, and then they'd have to move and do something else, and then jump around, <clears throat> and they'd start on something, they'd realize they couldn't finish it. They'd pull half the crew and have them do something else. Mm -hmm. So all of these half crews or third crews meant they started working successor activities out of sequence. Mm -hmm. So their schedule was showing that they needed 650 men on the job, workers on the job every day in order to be, in order to keep up with their schedule. And they didn't have about 350 and the CM was threatening them all the and, and the contractor was sending in RFIs and complaining about the the bad drawings and and talking about a change order for all of that and the CM's countering by saying no no the whole problem is you haven't you know not resourced the job mm-hmm. so <clears throat> when I fixed the out of sequence work by subdividing activities you know how you know how to do it <clears throat> yeah. it immediately brought the work brought the worker need right down to what they had so mm-hmm. I was able to show that they had the right amount of people in the job. And the problem was really all these other issues that were not allowing them to work efficiently. Yeah, it just shows you really That's, need to set your activities to the level that you manage your work. Exactly. Yeah. And so so the problem is when you try to operate with role resources, you got crappy data going in. You spend too much time getting it loaded. You have to manage it too much. It becomes a problem. And, and I realized on the contractor side at some point that – I really don't care who's on that electrical crew, Mm -hmm. right? 
I don't care if the electrical crew, if they're setting, if they're building a panel system, you know, a main switch gear. I don't care if they've got a foreman and a journeyman and 12 helpers and 32 laborers or three helpers and 100 laborers or 100 helpers. I really don't care. I don't need to know that as a GC, as an owner's rep, anything. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't need to step into that composition. I mean, we do it because we need to know the cost and everything else. But when, yeah. when it comes to managing the job, the resources, yeah. I, I really don't care. What I care about is that for every activity in the schedule, mm-hmm. that they have a crew that's capable of doing that activity by themselves within the duration we've set. Yep. Okay. <clears throat> That realization frees up a lot of problems mm-hmm. because as an owner's rep, you know, you fight constantly to get the contractors to resource load the schedules. You know, we try to make them do whatever the contract calls for. But right now I can take any schedule, if particularly if it's got decent activity coding for disciplines, mm-hmm. right? Trades. I can resource, I can crew load that schedule. I can do that with a global change in about five minutes mm-hmm. and I can run earn value off of that. If it's not cost loaded and resource loaded, I can look at my crew stacking off of that. Mm-hmm. And so I can actually manage resources at a crew level that is much easier, simpler, more effective, and more meaningful than trying to manage at a role level. Mm-hmm. And so, and what you're really doing, it's very simple. You load, you know, one electrical crew into every electrical activity per day, one crew per day. So you can do it a global change because, you know, you lose the weighted uh, thing that you get out of the cost, mm-hmm. the weighted part of the, you know, but, but I don't care about that. I care that the crews are working. And what that allows me to do is it allows me to quickly look at the concurrency of trade work, yeah. which is where the problems happen. And so, and I had a big federal project that I consulted on that they were having huge costs and time overruns. And I went in and sat in on, on their projects. And, you know, I I basically sat in on the meetings and I walked down the hall with the owner side team, the program manager and the CM and the owner, Mm -hmm. and just give them a list of what I saw that were problems. One of the problems was one of the projects that I looked at was a, repeat of a project built like a year or two before, almost identical. And they had the same schedule on it from the previous project. Okay. Now that might be fine, except the previous project ran 100% over time. Mm-hmm. And so here they have a new project with exactly the same schedule. And so I asked the question, what makes you think that it's going to be different? Mm-hmm. I said, well, we've looked at it. We learned our lessons and all that. And I said, okay, fine. The Now this particular schedule the owner's rep had reviewed it and approved it. The The program manager had reviewed it and approved it. They had a claims consultant that took a look at it and said, it's really tight. I think there's a huge risk, but it's approvable. Mm. I did a separate review with my team. We came back and we said, this is an unbuildable schedule. This is not approvable, tight, rigid, you know, high risk. This is unbuildable in this schedule in this time. And everybody said, oh, yeah, you're crazy. Why? Tell me, you know, can't prove that. And I said, I can prove it to you in about five minutes. Set me up a meeting with a contractor. Mm-hmm. So we set up a meeting. I got my team to prepare me a resource chart. I walked into the contractor, sat down, and I said, okay, this building has a lot of mechanical in it. Mm-hmm. If, you th- if you think about all the mechanical. So I'm just stepping back at a really, you know, the, the 50,000 foot level. Okay. Okay. How many, how many mechanical crews are you going to have on this job 
every day on the average. And when is your peak loading? You know, the most number of crews. And what's that, what's that going to be? And they said, well, it's a two and a half year project. We're going to have 12 mechanical crews kind of across the entire project. Our peak loading is next summer. And we're going to have 16 crews probably on it for that peak, you know, for about three months. And I said, well, here's your resource plan. Here's the number of crews you need. You need 63 crews next summer. So your peak loading is not 16. It's 63. It's 50 for the entire summer. So we're three times as many crews in the job to be able to do every activity that you have. And, you know, and if you think back, it's a simple little thing. All we're looking at is concurrency of activities, right? Yeah. You have two, two things there. It's like you can't shove that many of, uh, crews in one area. And two, I bet there's not that many tradespersons in the hall. <laughs> we already right. have skilled workers shortages, right? And you, and you identified the exact issue, which is that it is two issues. It's the stacking of trades, and then it's the overloading of spaces. And so when we do that, then we start pulling out space by space because some space is like a commercial kitchen on a, on a school project. The commercial kitchen has every trade you can put in there. And so we always look at that very carefully to say, what is the plan in that kitchen? What is the plan in the mechanical rooms? You know, what is the plan in any any area that has a lot of different trades working? And can they all can all the dissimilar trades work at the same time? What's the concurrency of dissimilar trades? And then what's yeah. the concurrency of the same trade? You know, can you buy that many people? And I've so now our standard schedule review, when we get a new schedule review in the door. First thing we do is recalculate it, hit F9, because sometimes people forget to do that. Yeah. The second thing second thing we do is compare the written narrative to the schedule, because the written narrative is the plain English version of what they're going to do. The schedule is the technical guy's version. Sometimes they don't match. And when they don't match, it's usually the PM that wrote the, the, the written narrative, and that's usually the right answer. And, and then we crew load the schedule. And if any one of those three things is a problem, we send it right back to the contractor. We don't waste a day. We go right back to him and say, look, your narrative doesn't match the sequencing, or we recalculate it and you come up with a different date, Mm -hmm. or take a look at your crew loading. Here's the problem. We'll we'll send him a histogram and say, basically, right now. And the fourth thing I do, if it's a building, the Army Corps of Engineers did a study back in the 80s. There used to be two guys at the Corps that had a website in the early days of the internet called the disk of knowledge. And it was great. These are two engineers or geeky, geeky project controls guys, both retired now, I think. Sounds like my kind of people. I know. <laughs> and they did a study of about 500 buildings that the core handled. And, you know, the core is pretty knowledgeable about scheduling. <clears throat> they picked 500 projects that succeeded, that had a good schedule, got built on time, you know, that basically showed the value of a good schedule. They they normalized all of those schedules across the project duration, and they picked they picked about forty milestones throughout that building. Start of plumbing rough in, dry in, you know, just all the different things that happens, right? And they normalized all of those all of those milestones by the percentage of the project duration, and then ran some type of analysis to come up with it, put it into a spreadsheet. I've been using that spreadsheet as a quality control device ever since the eighties. And so it's not broke, don't building, fix it, right? Yeah. 
because it, it works and it was a decent study. And I find, you know, I double check it every once in a while and it seems to be pretty good. The biggest thing that comes out of that from a global look is most projects do not have dry in early enough. Most projects let too much, they, they, they start the project in too relaxed of a schedule, you know, allowing too much slop time and everything else. And they get the dry in up here at about 60% of the project when it needs to be under 50. <clears throat> but it, it's one of my quality control things. So we run that. And if something is way off on it, then we just go back to the contractor and say, look, yeah. you know, you know, we think there's some issues here. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. One of the things I've always seen as kind of just a norm for the con- construction industry is mm-hmm. uh, the under uh, resourcing or, you know, um, of a project and I'm looking from like a project management standpoint, like my first uh, company I worked for, I went to the job and basically they were half of what they needed. And then the rest of the project, they were just playing catch up. So like, why don't you put enough people on the job and not have to ha- deal with these headaches? Cause one thing it's costing you more money down at the end of the project. And then you have a pissed off owner at you. So it's just, why don't you look at the plan, see how much people you need, and, and put those people on there. Yeah, and sometimes and sometimes also the duration doesn't work and it doesn't reflect the true number of resources, correct, Chris? Yep. And and half the time they don't know how to find out what the right yep. number of resources is. Mm-hmm. You know, they're trying to load roles, it's hard to do. Yep, it is. Crews will tell it to you very quickly. And you know, we can always take the crew count, establish what the composition is. You can dump that into a spreadsheet and you can, you know, multiply it out mm-hmm. and you can come up with a count of roles if you really need that. But, but that's my preference. It works well. I like anything as an owner's rep. I like anything I can do that doesn't force me to go back to the contractor and say, please load this, please do this, please change this. You know, we can load our own crews and then it's no effort for the contractor. It gives us really good information. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, you know, we use it. We also use it in, in what we call duration days. It's the same concept, but it's basically loading one duration day for every, every day on the project, every activity. Mm-hmm. And then you can run, you can run earned value off of that and you get a reasonable S curve. You get reasonable metrics. Again, they're not weighted for the cost, but if you think about it, Part of what you're trying to do is in your non-critical review is make sure that you are installing the work at a rate commensurate with getting done on time. So if you got 10 floors of building to build and you got 10 months, you better be getting a floor done a month, basically. And so you can do those duration days earn value. And that works very well as, as well. Mm-hmm. And again, it's a global change. It doesn't take any effort in the contractor. So when you're not cost loaded, we can still run earned value based on duration days. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I never w- really heard of that concept till today. Would you? Well, um, yeah. With with respect to earned value, Chris, that you've mentioned, would it be possible for a project or program to be successful without earned value? Well, of course it would. Okay. Easily. But but earned value, you know, and, and here's the concept: the three things you have to monitor in order to stay on track. Critical path, because those are the delays that will immediately mm-hmm. cause a delay. Yep. Near critical Correct. path, because the near critical path are the activities that will sneak up on you. Yep. They'll suffer a mid-period critical path shift, and they'll create a delay. Mm-hmm. 
and you'll be over here watching the critical path and a near critical path activity gets delayed, slaps you in the back of the head and boom, you got a delay. I like how you said that slaps you in the back of the head. That's good. Yeah. And, and from my lifetime of doing claims, an awful lot of periods, when I look at them, you know, when you examine period by period, an awful lot of periods, maybe 40% of the periods without a formal survey, the activity that caused the delay in a month was not critical at the beginning of the month. Mm-hmm. So it tells me near critical is just as important as a critical because they sneak yes. up on you. Yep. <clears throat> the third thing you have to monitor is that all the work gets put away at a rate commensurate to getting done on time. Okay. <clears throat> and so, and the fourth thing you do is look at trending, because, but that's kind of forecasting. But monitoring those three things, <clears throat> critical and near critical, we monitor with a critical path analysis, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Easy enough to do. <clears throat> the, the, if you want to, the, the non-critical or really all the work, we can monitor with a variety of tools. We look at float dissipation, right? Mm-hmm. Dissipation of float is it is it float is it dissipating at a reasonable rate? We look at you know missed starts and finishes because that tends to creep up. We look at uh, duration achievement, mm-hmm. what what we call tipper. Have you ever heard of the old tipper program software? No. So nope. tipper tipper was a piece of software that. Uh, the company the company created Tipper and Digger. Oh, Primavera is that different from Claims Digger? Um, the same thing from Claim. Primavera. Yeah, Claim, yeah. Claim Digger. So, so what happened was Primavera bought the company. They threw Tipper away foolishly. They threw Tipper away. Now I happen to have a CD from the old company, but they took Digger. They repackaged it as Claim Digger as a standalone. Then they rolled it up somewhere about P five. They integrated into into the software, so it's now now Digger is part of the software. Mm-hmm. What Tipper did was you have Tipper resident on your computer, you have it go look at a schedule, any update. It would it would identify all the activities that are complete, and particularly they complete that month. Mm-hmm. It will divide. It will take the actual duration, divide it by the original duration. So it's an assessment of whether you're you're meeting your original durations. Oh, based, it was, based on duration. Based. Yep. Yeah. And it was time performance ratio, TPR, but the name of the software was T-I-P-P-E-R, Tipper. And my my CD quit working in 2005, but by then we'd already dumped it into, used to do it in P6, then we do it in Excel. Mm-hmm. But it's a wonderful tool for a lot of reasons. First off, it helps you identify the trades where they're not meeting the durations. Mm-hmm. And and what you find, what I found in most projects is the the trades that are on the critical path, everybody's scrutinizing those trades. So they're usually they're hitting their durations or that, coming close. That makes close. sense. Mm-hmm. But the ones that are not on the critical path, nobody's watching it. So they're they're kind of allowed to operate at this more casual momentum effort. And yep. They will often start blowing their durations. And then one day they hit critical and then they're in trouble. And so <clears throat> we dump the data into Excel. Now we're moving into Power BI. So I'll, next week we're going to roll out our Power BI dashboards nice. for all this stuff. Excellent. But, but what I've been doing for 10 or 15 years is dump it into Excel, run pivot tables and chart those. And so we run it. We run a histogram for every trade of their tipper values, anybody that's over one, and really it's like over 1.2, 1.5, you know, because it's usually a little slot. But if they're over that, then that's a problem. So in our analysis, 
we identify those trades that are running over, so they're blowing their original durations. We'll do a global change one at a time mm-hmm. and increase. If the electrician's at 1.7, we will multiply all their future durations by 1.7 in a global change. Mm-hmm. Recalculate with the same date, and then we'll be able to say, if they continue to operate the way they're operating now, you're going to lose three weeks at the end of the job. Because when they do it's, hit the critical Just point, for our listeners to clarify, when you say global change, you're not talking about global change. We're talking about global change to the schedule for an, an, an analytical purposes, correct? Yeah, it's like yes. a basic, basic, basic term. All right, because, yeah. you know, I'm just an estimator here. So some of the things you're talking about, you know. So yeah, I forgot you, I forgot you were I, challenged. Well, you know, you know, I am I am sending for my PSP. So I guess, uh, you know, recovering. It would, uh, it would no. know. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, I'm trying to learn. Yep. Yeah, it's a function in P6, a powerful function function that will get you in so much trouble if you're not careful with it, mm-hmm. because it, it will change things globally in the software. But, but it's easy to use for something like this. And all it does is increase duration. So you just tell it, you know, pull out, pull out the trade, mm-hmm. electrician, 1.7, increase all the future durations. And we do that one at a time. And then we'll run them all together and just say, okay, you know, here's three trades. If they continue at the momentum they are under right now at the, at the productivity, the rate, they're going to cost you three weeks for this trade, two weeks for that trade, five weeks for that trade. Altogether, they're going to cost you two months. And that lets people start focusing on those. On the flip side, because we're always looking at how do you optimize the schedule for those trades that are coming in under one. So maybe the electrician's at 0.75. We'll do the global change, leverage, springboard that forward and say, look, and we go back to the contractor and say, look, if, if that electrician you know, the electrician's operating at 75% of the original duration. That means that they were either conservative mm-hmm. in their in their estimates, or maybe conditions are way better, or you're running a job so well, they're doing better. Maybe they have a smarter team. You know, whatever's going on, they're beating their original durations. It's in their best interest to continue to do that because they're making more money. So if you can convince that electrician to commit to those durations going forward, we just looked at it, and that will save you three weeks at the end of the job. So that will let us really embrace the power of CPM scheduling, which is to take the dead space all through the schedule and push it to the end and back up the end date and build yeah, some flow I think you're right. It's, it, that would be easy still to a contractor. As soon as they can get off that job, they can go to the next job and make more money. Uh, makes sense to me. Right. And if they commit to it, And they do that. It also puts all the other trades on a little bit more aggressive schedule. So now everybody's doing better. I realized that when I was a contractor, when I ran projects, I had I've had a number of of subcontractors come to me. And a common comment was, we really don't like the way you manage the job because you push us really hard. But when we finish, we always make more money on your jobs. Yeah, that's so, a friendly so I competition. Answer. I like it. Yep. So <clears throat> that's the value of Tipper. So Tipper is another way of evaluating the, the non-critical or all the work. Earned value is just another one of those, mm-hmm. right? Earned value is similar to float dissipation or Tipper or anything else. It allows you to look at trending, you know, to evaluate all the work. Mm-hmm. But yeah. with earned values only... Most people use earned value on a project level, and that's it. That's worthless. Absolutely worthless because, you know, if you're using costs, all it takes is your, 
well, your equipment package comes in three weeks early mm-hmm. or a month early. Boom. Now you just beat your earned value metrics, but it doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. But, but we run earned value on a per trade basis. So we filter out every trade, run an earned value metric on that trade. What's the SPI for electrical, SPI for mechanical. Then we publish those. That helps us also identify where one of those trades is not getting the work done. Because we want everybody working in every opportunity on the project, right? Just because they're not critical, we don't want them, you know, slacking off. We want them to operate the way they've scheduled, which is to try to be as efficient, get it done as much as they can. The more work we can put away, the better. So those are the three things you have to monitor. And earned value is particularly is useful, just like it's, it's more useful in a way than uh, a, a float dissipation mm-hmm. because the industry has adopted it, right? Yeah. Because it, it came out of the bean counter side. We used to do earned value, you know, in estimating, right? In, in early days, way before software. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then it kind of gravitated over. And so the industry adopts it. <clears throat> um, I once, uh, I worked for a company where we picked up a project building the the headquarters for a big um, manufacturing company that built airplanes and their specification when we bid the job, you know, we proposed to the job. We didn't really bid it. We were a consultant, but so they, we, we submitted as a construction manager, mm-hmm. their specs were only addressed earned value, right? They didn't have a critical path requirement of any kind oh, schedule. Really? No, they had an earned value because in a manufacturing plant, sequence doesn't matter so much. They've got the sequences set up in their stations, right? So they manage everything by earned value. And so one of the reasons we won the job is I did a complete write-up on why we needed to use critical path method scheduling Mm -hmm. and that we would use earned value in conjunction with it, but that it only manages pieces of it. Um, And and I've had, you know, I I had a government owner one time tell me that the contractor claimed that they had a delay mm-hmm. and she wanted to see an earned value metric to prove that that was in a delay, that that delay was a real critical path delay. And I said, well, we can definitely do that, breaking it down to trade. She said, no, no, I want to just see your earned value for the whole project. And I said, well, you can't do that. The mm-hmm. two are not the same, right? The critical path, right? yeah, you have to take it down to examine something. But even then, Earned value is a measure of what you're putting away, but it doesn't, even if you're focused on the critical path, you can still have something, you know, that improves that metric. Yep. Yep. So that's that's my feeling about earned value. Chris, with respect to the, um, because you mentioned about your experience about being a contract uh, on a rep and then also a contractor scheduler, what would be best for you to describe which one has the most um, experience that you might be good at becoming like a good scheduler contractor side or owner client rep so i have probably mentored 50 people who failed the psp over my lifetime they sort of shake out into about 75% of those are contractor schedulers who are highly offended because their response is, I've been scheduling for 15 years. All my projects come in on time. Everybody loves me. I do a great job and I didn't pass the PSP. Must be something wrong with it. The other 20, 25% were academics. 
once a guy that has PhD in civil engineering. <clears throat> so my response to those people on the contractor side is, first, have you ever actually read a book on technical CPM scheduling? And usually they say, no, I don't need to. I'm experienced scheduling. So I say, you failed it because you don't understand technical scheduling. You don't understand terms. You know, you don't understand float. You don't understand what free float and total float are. You know, you don't understand the real methodology. So you're working out here on the surface level. And yes, things seem to work, but you're never going to get to the technical level that will really tell you what's happening in the schedule. Now, the academics, I tell them, you know, you got to go work on a job. I mean, you got to you got to get involved in the job because they fail all the part. The PSP has word problems that basically ask you questions about interrelationships and who does what in a job and all. And they often don't know that. <clears throat> but <clears throat> what happens is <clears throat> you have to get to that deep technical level of scheduling to where you actually can identify more in a schedule than the contractor can. That's where we are. So when we do when we do a schedule review on a contractor schedule, which to me is also the quality control when we build a schedule, yeah. the review is the same thing. We're we're coming up with insights that the contractor rarely knows, very commonly does not does not spot. And so the the technical scheduler brings a lot more value to the project. The problem is you know, you have to have the field experience and really to understand a lot of that. Now, certainly the schedule is just a big database. So there's an awful lot of data manipulation, data management tools you can use. Hence, hence dumping into Excel, using pivot tables, mm -hmm. you know, different things. And now Power BI. When we get a lot of young engineers that are really good with the software, I can train them into being a good technical scheduler that can at least do the 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 P6 side of that and the you know and the pivot table side and that type of thing but they don't really understand what that means right because mm -hmm. they don't really understand the sequencing at all mm -hmm. so <clears throat> one of the hardest conversations i have to have with with you know my project controls managers are <clears throat> you know it, so and so mary smith is your best analytical scheduler right and they say yes how long has she been with you 3 years yes great okay i need you to push her out in the field yeah, I'm agree. sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm glad she's your best technical scheduler, but she's limited to what she's going to be able to do mm -hmm. until she gets out there and lives through that sequencing, sees what happens on the field. And so I just, and I, and I tell everybody, that's what you got to do now. No, I couldn't so, agree more. You had to have that balance because uh, you had to be able to um, imagine what you're building in your head, but then how else are you going to put those logical links together? If you, know, yep. if you don't see it. Physically with your eyes, that's that's me. I have to see something like in person. Okay, that's how it's constructed. Like you know, when it came to physics, I, I did I did great in that that kinetic physics. You get to see something fall on the ground. When it came to molecular physics, it's like I don't see it. I, I don't understand it. So you know, going out in the field, seeing how things are constructed, and then you see all that little stuff that's not in your cost database. So like mm -hmm. you know, putting down a slab on grain. Oh, you have those little. Um, I think they're like you know. Adobe things where you kind of lay your re rebar on top of that. I'm like, that's not in, in, on the line item. So you have to see these little things that trade people will do. And so when I was a project engineer, I just walked aside and watched people work. Learned a lot that way. Yeah. yeah. Why is the mixer? Why is the mixer sitting there for an extra half an hour before they load it back it up? You know? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. Because staying staying too much time in the in the office doesn't make it like a great scheduler, like what you said, Chris. Yeah, because they will they will not learn. Uh, yeah, this this atrophy like is right up here yeah. between the ears. It's just like a, a a database person. Okay, do that, calculate the schedule, and then that's it. <laughs> to the reporting. So, and I started on the contractor side. So I started as one of those contractor schedulers where my schedules are great. I didn't have really that. I mean, I understood CPM because I was interested in it. Mm-hmm. You know, I read a lot, but, but you get sloppy too, as a contractor schedule, you're always behind the eight ball. Fair I, enough. Got, yep. I got my slap alongside the head when I had to testify. My, the first time I had to testify was on a concrete project, reinforced concrete project. And I had built the schedule and where normally, you know, if you're the recipient witness, the fact witness, you wouldn't also be the expert. But on the contractor side, it's not unusual to be the person doing the work and then also testifying about it and, you know, sure, sort of. Well, it makes sense. You're basically the one that's, if you're in that position, using the hot water. So you made the problem, defend yourself. That's right. And so I had done a mid-rise building. When you do concrete, reinforced concrete, one of the chases you have is generally there's rental formwork, right? Not many contractors have all their own formwork, so they rent it. And they're paying so much a month. So the chase is as soon as I have a truckload of formwork here that I'm done with, stripped and ready to go, I want to send it back to the rental plant, right? So done right, you know, as you build a schedule, you know, you move the formwork. And so you literally work out the formwork as a resource. So the inside can of elevator shaft two gets pulled off the second floor and gets set on the inside can of elevator shaft three on the third floor. And, okay. and you map the flow of the formwork around the building. <clears throat> and with that, you get to the point where certain formwork you're done. And so the last time you, so, so with all that formwork, you strip the formwork here and you link that to setting that formwork on another location. But at the last time, you can't move it until it's done there. Right. (laughs) But the last use of that formwork, you know, you pull it off the job. And, And so what I usually do is I have a couple of activities in the schedule that just say, collect the formwork for rental for, for return. And then I start linking formwork to that activity. So they're linked. And that way it sort of tells me when I get a certain mass of formwork and then that sort of alerts the, the PM that they're going to be ready next week to get the formwork people to come pick it up. Okay. That's, I understand that. Yes. Yeah, so yep. you have a, you're, you're you can't just move piece by piece. You kind of collect it and then you set up for the next stage, right? Yeah. And then you send it all back in one truckload. So I had one project. I had built a schedule with the team, with the actual guys doing the work. I could not get them to sit down with me and talk about the 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 the, the last bit of the flow. In other words, I figured out with them where the formwork moved from floor to floor, but I couldn't get them to tell me particularly on the, 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 the wall formwork, which isn't, you know, it's easy enough on the inside can mm-hmm. because you've already built that, you keep that intact. And the last time you use it, you're ready to knock it down and send it away. <clears throat> I couldn't get them to really tell me though, how much of the outside wall formwork on what floor you're going to kick it out of here. And so all of my formwork activities, the last strip activity 
in the formwork was left unconnected because I was waiting. I should have dyed it, but I didn't. And so it, it was a big job. So I'm testifying and they've had an expert look at my schedule. You know, they had a technical expert look at my schedule built by me, a construction expert. And the lawyer said to me under oath, I'm on a under oath in deposition. This was, Mm -hmm. and said, um, is it good CPM scheduling practice to have open ends? in the schedule. No. So an open end is an activity that's not tied off to yeah. something. And I, I learned kinda, that much. Come on. <laughs> and I, yeah, no. well, you know, I told you, we recognize that you're, you know, that you're disadvantaged. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Challenge <laughs> scheduling challenge. I'm going to remedy that pretty darn quick. Good for me. you. Yeah. I know. And so I knew where he was going. So I said, yes, but, and he cut me off. Right. He didn't let me answer. He let me answer. Yes but didn't let me explain it. And then he says, and so how many open ends should you have in a schedule? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, normally two, but cut me off. And he said, so if you had a schedule that had say a hundred open ends, would you consider that to be a bad schedule? And I said, maybe, but, and he said, cut me off. And he said, yes or no. Is that you just said open ends are not a good thing. If you have a hundred open ends, would not that be a bad schedule? Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I had to eventually say yes, but, and he cut me off again. So <clears throat> I sat there while he taught me the value of technical scheduling, basically by grabbing me by the throat with one hand and backhanding me with the other hand over and over and over again. <clears throat> so when I came out of that deposition, mm-hmm. you know, soaked, soaked in sweat, <clears throat> feeling like the biggest failure of my life. I made sure I went right back to the office and I pulled every schedule and did a count on, made sure I didn't have a single open end. <laughs> so that's the benefit oh. of technology. Most people that's a great. It. That's a great story. Um, I think uh, we, we have, we're you know, kind of wrapping up on time here. So I, I think we have about 10 more minutes left. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything uh, else you just are dying to share? <laughs> Yeah, no. g- give me give me the best uh, shot that you have. Enjoy, like you know, being a scheduler all throughout your career. And how would you help out the uh, the listeners uh, on our podcast? Uh, how to entice them rather than being like a scheduler or project controls person? What is it with Chris Carson that he really loves truly in his profession? <coughs> learning all the disciplines of project controls mm-hmm. makes allows you to really look at the integration of those disciplines. So that's scheduling costs, risk, document control, and then the whole world of forensic analysis. Mm-hmm. I started out as an estimator. You know, all contractors have an estimating department. Very few contractors have a scheduling department. Yep. As an estimator, I got tasked with scheduling because nobody was doing it. Eventually I realized and I estimated for 20 years. So I was an estimator, worked my way up to, you know, head of estimating and eventually project controls. But what I realized on the estimating side, John, is you're never a hero, right? And yeah. when you work when you work for a contractor, you know, you, you never pick up enough work. You always leave too much money on the table. When you do win the work, they can't possibly build it for that ridiculous price you got, you want it with. Yeah. <clears throat> on a schedule... But but you get respect because you're the estimator. As a yeah. scheduler, right? No one's as a, that crazy enough to actually do that work, <laughs> right? right? 
as a scheduler, you don't really get that high level of respect because they don't want to waste their time with you. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, you get to drag somebody kicking and screaming back from the edge of the cliff mm-hmm. and pull them out of the crack and save their life and make money and make it work. Yeah. <clears throat> Estimating is easier to standardize and get a system and get it up and running and get good quality control and monitor that. Scheduling is harder to do that because everything is so different. So my heart is really in scheduling, but I really like integrated cost schedule risk efforts. Mm -hmm. I'm right there with you. Yep. A scheduler should embrace risk because we should be involved in risk workshops, Mm -hmm. the register. We should be helping to write risk response plans. We should be loading the risks into the schedule, you know, linking them into the activities so that when you publish a two-week look ahead, you should have a list of all the risks that are, are sitting there waiting to hit you on those activities. Mm-hmm. And when you start doing that, you move the company along a maturity path yep. that, that is useful, you know, good qualitative basic risk management that is scheduled risk management. I've had so much good luck with risk workshops, particularly scheduled risk workshops. And then as you move into integrating, I like that more. <clears throat> a, a good scheduler will be better when they do claims, right? So a good technical scheduler needs to be a technical scheduler in order to do that. But when you step into the world of doing forensic analysis, you get better. You see all the mistakes. <clears throat> you know, my entire uh, project controls process and particularly scheduling processes are are informed through my claims experience. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> just like with the claim, we bifurcate the analysis. One of the things I've seen in, in forensic analysis failures are a failure to work the plan. You know, my granddad told me 50, 60, 60 years ago, probably. <clears throat> well, not quite, probably 50 <clears throat> to plan to work and work the plan. I used that a week ago in a training session. It hasn't changed. <clears throat> but most projects that fail, you look at what the plan was and you realize they never follow the plan. So when we do a schedule review, we bifurcate our analysis. So we import the progress only and then look at it. And then that tells us how do they do against their plan? And that allows us to identify where they're getting off track. Mm-hmm. So the the involvement in claims gives you a lot more insight into what's going on in your schedule. So, but I happen to love it. Uh, the pay is better in project controls than it is the CM. A good friend of mine up in New Hampshire got laid off as a CM. He's a great scheduler. I know he's, and I've known him for a long time through the industry. Great schedule. He called me up one day. He was really depressed. Mm. He said, this, this is 15 years ago, but he called me up in one of those low spots of work. He said, I got laid off. I can't get another CM job. You know, there's just aren't that many. And I said, why are you looking for CM jobs? He says, what do you mean? I said, you're a great scheduler. Why don't you look for scheduling jobs? And he said, well, I never thought about it. He went away, called me back in a week and said, you know, when I was looking for CM jobs, I found three jobs I could apply for. None of them took me. I went to scheduling. I found 15 jobs I could apply for. I got my choice of jobs. I got a higher salary. It's a harder role to fill. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's, nice. it is true. True. It is yep. a pretty hard role, but, but integrated efforts and stay on top of the technology. 4d is big deal. You know, getting into that very mm-hmm. carefully, you know, I think a scheduler now needs to be a power BI guy. You need to be moving it just like you always had to be an Excel person, right? 
You had to be able to do pivot tables and all that, estimating mm-hmm. your scheduling. Now you need to be in Power BI because now you can dump it all into a dashboard. You know, it'll give you that the power the, the risk that we, yeah. Yeah, the and risk I, the risk that we have from technical schedulers and estimators are mainly that the risk is that we are so buried in the details, mm-hmm. and no matter what we say, when we hand somebody a report, in the back of our head we're going, "You need to read every single page of that twenty-five page report." You know, you got to read it because it's all important. But in yeah. reality, they're only going to look at the first page, mm-hmm. and so learning the perspective between that heavy detailed orientation. We have to be able to do that because we got to get in there and figure it out. Mm-hmm. But we have to be able to communicate that in a one page, simple English summary that says, here's what's going wrong. Here's what you need to do. And here's what happens if you don't do it. Mm-hmm. And Yeah. Because when- what's the point of doing all of that work if no one's going to listen to you? Right. And, and not everyone that is those decision makers uh, understand the technical side of scheduling. That's right. Uh, and and also too, I really appreciate what you said. Um, you know how you like the whole uh, you know pie of project control. You know from mm-hmm. estimating scheduling because I'm like you know I just said I'm going for my PSP, yep. but after that I'm going for an EVP risk. I wanna I wanna be that person to understand all of that because it all ties together. Because the way I say it is like once you're good at risk, then you put that risk yeah. in your your project plan, yep. and then once you uh, do that whole estimate, uh, you know life cycle cost of project control, mm-hmm. it goes right back into your risk contingency planning. So yeah. uh, I, and the, I think you're going to see more of that. Yeah. Yeah. And the earlier that you can get people in their career, the earlier you get them to move laterally, the easier. Because you get somebody that's a very experienced estimator, mm-hmm. you know, it's not likely that anybody's going to be very happy to have you move into an entry-level scheduling role. Right? Fair enough, yeah. So the the earlier they can start spreading out, the better. Now you know claims is a different one because you got to get to a certain level with that, but mm-hmm. but really getting your arms around all of that, you know, and bringing it up as you go, it's been really good for me. Mm-hmm. And you know, and just understand that we all make mistakes. I've made more mistakes than any of you guys. I'm older than you. I guarantee I made more mistakes. But learn from your mistakes. I, I do my best not to make them twice. But I have my days when I get in the shower and I start thinking about all the things I've done wrong. And I'm just like, God, I'm ready to go back to bed. And then I just slap myself and say, okay, move on. And and that's that makes a difference. And then the, the last thing I would say for everybody is you need to have fun. Yeah. This has to be fun for you. If it's not fun, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. So enjoy yourself. Don't be too serious about it. I mean, people will tell you that I crack jokes sometimes inappropriately because <laughs> you need to, smile. to me, everything <laughs> yeah. has a humorous component to it. Yeah, and yeah, because so, you can't you cannot be successful if you're not passionate about work. What are you doing? Right. Then you're not going to put you're not going to put your full self into it, and and you're not you're not happy. You're, you have a poor work product. It's not good for anyone. Mm-hmm. People ask me when I'm going to retire. And my wife laughs because I'm just like, I don't know. You know, um, they're going to fire me one day. I know I'll retire the day they fire me. So basically, forced retirement that, for you. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, beyond that, 
I can go part-time when I'm ready mm-hmm. and all that. But right now I get up in the morning. I like what I'm doing. It's exciting. There you, go. you know, I help a lot of people, <clears throat> you know, I get a lot of kudos just from helping people mm-hmm. around the country. <clears throat> of course, my biggest problem here is contact management. I'll get a call from an engineer that will say, I talked to you two years ago about a project. I'm ready to move forward with what we talked about. And I'm like, you know, I'm scrambling into Outlook, putting his name in there because I don't remember him. <laughs> I don't remember the conversation. I can only hope that the advice I give him today is close to what I gave him two years ago. Yeah. <clears throat> hey, but you know. but we're, we're lucky to have you, um, Chris. Yeah, thank you for joining you, us you, today. This has been an you, awesome you, conversation. Yeah, you've been a guru. You're truly a guru for all of us, not only on scheduling, but man and all on project controls all over the world your name yeah, should we do our uh wayne's world impression you know <laughs> we're not worthy we're not worthy everybody's got to give back right yeah. everybody's yeah. you guys are doing great promoting an aace mm-hmm. i mean i i'm involved in rcs cmaa you know uh, a number of pmi to lesser extent now but AACE hands down is the best place for project controls, mm-hmm. you know? And so, you know, and cost engineering as John Holman kicks me in the butt about, but it's the same thing. You know, I, I, I did commercial work before I got into industrial work. So I, mm-hmm. I would do pre-project planning for a developer going to build a shopping center as a CM when he would be doing cost engineering for a refinery project. So to me, it's the same thing, but you got to give back, the more you can give back through an association, the better for everybody. You know, I got started at AACE wanting to improve the industry, right? Wanting to improve your own legacy, I bet, you know, it's your legacy. You want to leave something behind. It's like, I I personally, when I pass, I I don't want my life to be, you know, yes, I have my family. I love them, but I love my Mm -hmm. professional life and I don't, I want a record of that, you know? So that's why I'm involved. Yep. Yeah. And what you find along the way is if you're doing a good job and you're working hard at it, people get to know you. I bring in so much work where somebody follows me on some of my papers and one day they call and they'll say, look, we got a program here. Really want Chris involved. And I'll get a call from somebody from some, you know, some other state somewhere that says, you know, the person's a follower for you. They want you involved. We're going to propose on something. We weren't thinking about it. We pick up so much work where we don't have to go after it so much. Yeah. Right. So it's just getting out there and, and you know, and also back. from a less of a personal standpoint, uh, sorry, less of a company standpoint, but a personal standpoint, I was just talking to uh, Kristen Hiller of AAC who just did a, a salary um, survey and people yep. who are members, people who do papers and people who write R- RP make more, mm-hmm. more and more money than their counterparts in the industry. So in short story, yep. uh, you know, basically get involved, you'll make more money and then you make more money for your company, which makes you more money. So why not? And you have a good time, meet some great people. Yep. Like, Christian's a great guy. I really like working with him. Yeah. Like, what can I tell you a quick story? Go ahead. Can I tell you a quick story about Christian? Yeah. Well, let's hear the story about Christian uh, and then let's wrap it up. So, one year I had five papers I was doing, I got behind. And I reached out to him to get an extension and he gave me a hard time. And he told me, you know, deadlines are deadlines and so forth. And he was, he was joking a little bit, but, but he had me a little nervous about it. I got four of them done. I couldn't get the other one done. And I got to thinking, I just need like another week or two. So I had written three pages. I copied those three pages and pasted them onto the back of the paper. And I did that three times. 
So I turned in a, you know, like a 12, 14 page paper that was just three pages repeated a couple of times. I submitted it. (laughs) And then three weeks later, I sent him my completed version. I said, look, uh, this, I've made some changes here, which I had. (laughs) Please replace this. I changed about 75% of it. it He never, he never seen it. He never figured it out. And so (laughs) a couple of years later, I had a couple too many papers and, and I called him. I said, I'm going to be late. And he's like, starting to give me a hard time. I said, look, I know you don't even read those papers, you know? And he said, what do you mean? And I told him that story. It was so funny. <laughs> and I said, you have positively reinforced my bad behavior. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. But he's the funniest guy. He sends oh. me emails that I'm just sitting here laughing my ass off over things that he, he just, he's sharp and he's, he's a good guy. Yeah. I will do that yeah, same I, on, on my RP, Chris. Don't worry about that. Hey, uh, I'm going to send it and I'm going to revise it later. So I'm just awesome. kidding. <laughs> yeah. RPs are tougher yeah, because, you know, everybody's looking at that. Mm-hmm. And they're very, very I've important. Now been, I've, I've now been an author or contributing author, I think for 16 hmm, RPs. And the big ones are tough. I mean, you know, the uh, analyzing the critical path. Ron Winter started it. You know, I finished it. We both got blown out with it, just with all the comments and everything. So they're pretty good. My first one was recovery scheduling. That one was so slashed and burned by everybody. That was a humbling experience because I'd submitted my first draft just for, you know, committee review and I got beat up and beat up and beat up, but every single comment was useful. And at the end of the day, it was a way better, way better product. Yeah. You have to have that thick skin when you do that type of stuff. Cause I've done some collaborative papers in the past uh, for not AAC, but outside for my own, my organization I work for Mm -hmm. and it's, it gets pretty brutal. You got, you can't take it personal. And you know, the nice thing is it does end up being a better product. So you just have to be willing to listen, you know, not read between the lines with those comments and just move Mm -hmm. forward. Yep. Well, this was good guys. A lot of good questions. I enjoyed this chat. Uh, Hope this does well Uh, for you. Yep. And then um, you bet we're gonna, you're gonna be engaged again to you and inviting you again. Okay, let's do it. Thanks very much. All right. Thank you, guys. Good night. Take care. Take care. Bye. Be safe.